0: Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started today, I just wanted to mention that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. fun yeah (laughs) okay good because i know i am (laughs) all right well hello everyone this is deb and this is beth and we want to welcome you to this episode of Dying to Be Found. I just wanted to kind of give a quick little update. I am somewhat technically savvy, but not a hundred percent. And I wanted to be sure that our listeners know that our email is dying the number two, the letter B found at gmail.com. Because I set up an original email that matched our logo, but for some reason, Google is not verifying me and that I don't know how to verify me. So if anybody knows how to verify me, please email me at dying to be found with that two in the middle and a B in the middle. And that's all I got to say. So what's going on, Beth?
1: Well, I was going to ask you that.
0: What's going on in your world this week? I've got a day off today and I'm catching up on all those things that we don't like to do like insurance and... Making appointments and things like that. But it's relaxing. I got to sleep in a little bit.
1: Oh, good. What time was that? Mm-hmm. Seven? No, eight. Eight o'clock. Good. <laughs> I had the day off today, too, and I set my alarm for 5 a.m. so I can have a lot of hours in my day. I just have so much art to work on and girlfriends to visit. Oh, that's nice. So you went to visit girlfriends today? Uh, yeah, and then I had one in. We were teaching her a technique for her scrapbook, so we're all set. Good. I got my hair done.
0: Oh, and it is so cute, folks, <laughs> cute. I, I went for a little different look. I'm sure I'll put it out there on social media soon because I just put one of our um, advertisements out there today, and um, it's slightly different, not too, too different, but uh, definitely people are going to notice on uh, tomorrow when I go back to work. Anyways, oh. well, do you want to go ahead and get started, or is there yeah. anything else
1: you want to talk about? So today we're going to talk about H.H. Holmes, one of the first serial killers on record. I'm going to give a very detailed background that leads up to the events of the story because I really feel this is necessary to paint a picture of who H.H. H. Holmes is and how he was perceived in the community.
0: Do you mind me asking you? I don't, I know the name. I just don't know anything about it. You said he was the first serial killer on record.
1: Yes, So
0: in is America. He, okay, is he the one that coined the term serial killer? Do you know? No, I mean, I don't think he would have.
1: But is he the reason? I doubt it because this is going back so far. Okay. To the 1800s. Oh, wow. Okay.
0: Well, I'm excited. Keep going. I'm sorry to interrupt you.
1: That's okay. (laughs) Deb and I decided that the story will be in two parts, because there is a lot of information about H.H. Holmes that needs to be told that eventually leads up to his crimes. We are going to break this down to Holmes' young adult life in part one, so we can paint a clear picture of his character. Then we will go into crimes in part two. So please be patient, but I think you're going to enjoy this. I know I'm going to
0: enjoy this because I'm intrigued already. I just, I know the name. I just don't know. I can't believe I've I've gone this long without knowing who this person is.
1: Well, I can't believe I didn't neither and this was brought up by a coworker at work and they were shocked I'd never heard of this gentleman before. So I looked it up and I thought, "Oh, I'm going to buy a book on him and I am going to read and learn." So Herman Webster Mudgett was born on May 16th, 1861 in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. Spoiler alert, Herman later changed his name to H.H. H. Holmes later in life. In the meantime, I refer to him as Herman Mudgett. So Mudgett was born to Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price, who were two of the first English immigrants in the area. Herman was a third born child of five children. And was considered to be a mama's boy. Oh, During-
0: a mama's boy. I had one of those until until he probably turned 16 or 17. And then he just went on out into the world and I barely see him anymore. But when he comes over, we have fun. That's nice.
1: <laughs> I still have a mama's boy.
0: I love that. <laughs> Maybe your mama's boy can talk to my not mama's boy. <laughs>
1: During his childhood, Herman enjoyed designing scarecrows and motion machines. Okay, can I stop you there?
0: I'm sorry. I'm random, in case you didn't know that, Beth. I'm random. Okay, have you in the in the fall have you ever driven through a town where they really dress up the town for Halloween or just for fall festivals coming in? Um, we had a town a couple years ago where I was driving through to visit a friend, and everywhere I looked, people had all these scarecrows. So
1: did a uh, tell when I lived out in uh, Nova Scotia.
0: You had that in Nova Scotia.
1: Yeah, in the town we were in. And I, when we first moved there, it was so cool. Wedding was dresses. cool. They, they were even wearing wedding dresses and wow. outfits. Oh,
0: yeah, that's so neat. But the further I drove through town, I just started thinking, wow, th- this is getting a little creepy because I was like, oh, look at that. Look at that one wearing a wedding dress. That is so cool. And then wait a minute, this is getting creepy. Just a bunch of scarecrows. I mean, I guess I had to really, I think I went online to see what the deal was with the scarecrows, but it's a great concept. I think more people need to get back to doing that.
1: So what is the deal with
0: scarecrows? I don't know. It was just creepy seeing a bunch of them looking at you when you're driving through town. It's like like one of those movies, you know, where people get lost.
1: (laughs) Okay, sorry to interrupt you, continue. (laughs) That's okay. So it seems that Mudgett was quite resourceful from the beginning, which continued into his later years. His personal dream was to marry a local rich girl who could finance his medical school. Once he reached adulthood, he took on many jobs, such as a teacher, a physician, A pharmacist, a barber, and a hotel owner. Mudgett grew up with a fascination with the human skeletal frame and was believed to begin studying medicine because of this. He first studied medicine in Vermont, then eventually transferred to the University of Michigan Medical School. He was known to work on cadavers on a daily basis during his studies. I have a story about cadavers. Can I tell it? Yes.
0: (laughs) Okay. So, our other sister was in medical school years and years ago. I'm talking about when she was first going off to college, university, and I used to live close by her. So I would drive to go see her on the weekends and she was, oh, I don't know. She was so excited about being at medical school and she's like, oh gosh, let's just go take a tour of the campus. She took me here and there, which was quite interesting and intriguing because you would see different rooms, you know, when you go into a doctor's office and they have that skeleton hanging in, yes. the, in the room, there were those hanging in there. And then she was like, okay, you, this I'm saving the best to last. Anyway, so we walk into this room and it is full and I mean full. Full. It's, it was just a room full of cadavers. And she was so excited about showing me this room that she was literally flipping body parts just here and there and, and flipping back the cavities of the stomach and just talking oh. her medical talk. I was horrified. Did you, did you have nightmares after that? No, but I was just like, oh my gosh. And then somewhere along the way, she's like, you should donate your body to science.
1: Oh, <gasps> <laughs>
0: Anyways, so I've been in a room
1: full of cadavers. Mm, That's... That's creepy. <laughs> and here we are having a podcast on creepiness. Yeah, for sure. It was it was definitely creepy, but
0: intriguing at the same time. Okay, I'm done. Uh,
1: so I'll just start back with he was known to work on cadavers on a daily basis with the studies while at, attending anatomy lectures three times per week. However, he began to observe some of these bodies were being donated to science, which were of less than honorable circumstances, meaning... Many of the people who ended up in medical school did not die of natural causes or came from local cemeteries. Winter classes at school were so busy that all the bodies were used up. This led Holmes to seeing the value of cadavers for money, greedy little guy, which would become one of several different money-making schemes that he would become involved with later in life. Mudgett ultimately learned in medical school that digging up cadavers could pay for his tuition. So he also earned a reputation of stealing cadavers from the medical laboratory and even burned Disfigured and planted bodies to look like they were killed in an accident. That's gross. I
0: know. Eh? Okay, that's that's bizarre. So he's like using them as Barbie dolls. Yeah. Nice. That's,
1: this this is guy is really creepy. So Mudgett married a young lady named Clara Loverling in 1878, likely to help pay for his tuition in medical school. I think and there so. it yeah. is. We had mentioned earlier that his intent was to live off the riches of a wealthy wife. However, Holmes was known to have a violent temper, and in 1884, Clara moved back to New Hampshire where the couple lost touch with each other. The couple never divorced, they just separated when Clara moved away. Once separated, Holmes was forced to leave his medical career to teach because he simply could not afford his own schooling. By 1881, Mudgett was facing substantial financial hardship and was doing everything he could to survive he lost his bank. Yeah. So this is where he's going to move to Chicago in 1884. So I'm going to give you a a background to Holmes there. Okay. So
0: just as a recap, though, so he basically when he was what in his early 20s, he he married just like everybody else does. And then he was still going through medical school. And at that time, it turned out that he probably had a couple little quirks and liked to hang out with the corpses a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So he's moving. Yeah. Okay. This is an intense story. I mean, I guess I'm trying to think, I'm envisioning back in the 1800s when, I guess, when the Industrial Revolution is coming to town or coming into, you know, everyday life. So, Mm -hmm. and I'm just trying to think too, with being the 1800s in medicine, I mean, how much did they really know in comparison to today? But it's interesting that they had the capacity to have those cadavers.
1: Well, exactly. This is um, at the same era as Jack the Ripper. And there was always question if he was actually the Jack the Ripper, but that wouldn't be possible with him back in the 1800s having to travel to two countries. That's just a a fib going around that he could be Jack the Ripper.
0: I I know who Jack the Ripper is too, but was he over in Europe? He was in England. Okay, gotcha. You might have to do Jack the Ripper too. Yeah. And do some comparisons.
1: I just, I'm intrigued by the 1800s. I think I am too. Good. Then it's, then it's a date. We'll do that. (laughs) okay. Um, About six years into his separation from Clara, Herman moved to the Chicago area when he was around 25 years old. He had a knack for business at the time and wanted to come to a bigger area where high rises were being constructed. It was during this period that Herman changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes or H.H. Holmes when he relocated to Chicago because he was known as a scam artist and did not want to be exposed for previous scams under his real name. Here he went to work for a local pharmacy. Going forward, we'll refer to Herman as H.H. Holmes. Now, just a year earlier, Holmes talked with a friend about buying life insurance, and together the two decided that they would find other accomplices who would help to fake the death of a family of three so that they could cash in on life insurance policy. Why a family of three? Bigger payout, and it's probably what an average family would be back then. Oh, okay. The man's life would be insured for 40000 which included his wife and daughter. What this meant was, if the wife and daughter were murdered and the husband committed suicide out of duress, the insurance premium will be paid out to the beneficiary. Holmes and his accomplices planned to split the insurance on said family members for an equivalent of $1 million in today's standards. Did they say that they were family members?
0: Were they trying to make a connection with the insurance company saying that whoever it was that they were setting up for the insurance? Were they saying that they were family members and putting themselves down as beneficiaries?
1: They were trying to just find anybody right now. And okay. not necessarily, it doesn't have to be family related for for Holmes, which okay. we'll later find out. So his plan never came to fruition because insurance fraud was becoming very popular during this era. And Holmes became worried that they would be caught. Shortly after, Holmes and his partner parted ways and lost touch with one another. Does that
0: mean he actually had a conscience or he was just afraid of getting caught?
1: Getting caught. Okay. This man has such an ego, he thinks he's flying in the air. Hmm. So once he relocated to the Chicago area, Holmes bought a local pharmacy from the widow of the pharmacist where he was initially found work. This pharmacy was located in Inglewood, Illinois, which is located about nine miles or 14 kilometers outside of Chicago. Some say that the death of this pharmacist was somewhat suspicious and that Holmes had something to do with it. Then soon after he bought the pharmacy, the widow went missing. Holmes claimed to the people in town that she moved to California after the death of her husband. I'm sorry. Does it sound suspicious that she would move away if in that era? In that era, it probably was. Today, not so much. But back then, you know, there were close-knit families and everybody knew everybody's business.
0: True and they're probably not as spread out as we are today. Exactly.
1: On January 28, 1886, Holmes married Murda Belknap, despite the fact that he was still married to Clara from his first marriage. Murder described Holmes as incredibly loving toward her and their baby Lucy. He always had to have a pet because he loved animals. Two weeks after marrying Murta, Holmes petitioned the courts to divorce Clara. He ended up letting the petition lapse and it was dismissed for failure to prosecute. I don't understand why he would let it lapse. I don't neither. Well, he
0: was already married. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why, because he was married first. And then if the divorce went through, he would probably, I I don't know, maybe he would have been exposed for already being married to Yoda.
1: Yeah, that sounds rational. Holmes quickly came with an elaborate plan to fake his own death so that his marriage to Clara could be dissolved. Always scheming, isn't he? However, Holmes later found that following through with the scheme would prove to be difficult. He initially intended to use one of the cadavers from the medical school as his own body, but he was unable to follow through and life moved on. That same summer, Holmes' pharmacy's business continued to do very well in Inglewood. As I mentioned earlier, Holmes had a knack for business, so it was no surprise that he had been eyeing a vacant lot across the street from the pharmacy for a very long time. He eventually purchased the lot under a false name of H. S. Campbell and soon began sketching out plans for what would come later. In 1889, Holmes designed a three-story hotel with the intent to accommodate visitors for public events coming soon to this area. Holmes balanced the construction of his hotel with successful pharmacy business. Since he had a background in medicine, he was living what he could be considered as a very comfortable life. He was flirtatious with female customers who came to his shop. They would ask to speak with Holmes directly. Now remember, Holmes was married to Murda at this time. Murda thought her husband's behavior was cute at first, but as soon became very jealous And lonely. Watching my husband
0: flirt with a bunch of other women would be cute in the least.
1: I know. Could you imagine? Maybe, well, maybe she was kind of proud thinking she had a real catch there.
0: True, because he was a pharmacist and he was was building the hotel. So Mm -hmm. obviously he was well off in the community, right?
1: Yeah. And Holmes was very, he was a very elegant man in a lot of people's eyes and... Everybody had him on a pedestal at times. This Mm. is a man that really took over the city and um, very pleasant personality. So Holmes planned out his building without consulting an architect. He wanted the first floor to be retail space so he could generate income and also bring in as many women to the area as possible. He started a woman's placement agency to support the movement of women going to work. Eventually, he opened a new pharmacy on the first floor after selling off his first The second and third floors were designed to be apartments, and this is where Holmes took up his own residence. He built a large office overlooking the corner of 63rd and Wallace, which was important because it was announced that the World's Columbian Fair would take place in Inglewood. Holmes' building would eventually be just a short streetcar ride from the end of 63rd. So a lot of people would be on the path just to get to his hotel. You know, I know we talked about Downton
0: Abbey in the past. There was another show. This is reminding me of that time That time period. Mr. Selfridge. Don't Have you ever it. seen that one? No. Okay. He's the guy that actually came up with the term, the customer's always right. Really? Yeah. And it's one of those PBS specials. You all, if you don't watch PBS specials, they're amazing, but it's just a part of history. His name is Mr. Selfridge and he opened, he was an American that moved over to Europe and really started the retail business over there kind of like the size um, of a department store like Sears or J.C. JCPenney if it's time right but oh, he coined yes. he coined the phrase the customer is always right I would definitely recommend that so um, cool. Holmes kind of sounds kind of like the same way as far as an entrepreneur yes and how he is you know started that's a really good concept for retail space on the bottom floor and, and think about how people are, or how communities are being developed today. I don't know if you have that in your community where you live, but I see a bunch of residential slash retail neighborhoods going up where you've got either townhouses in the same area as little
1: mini malls. Have you seen yeah, those? Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, um, so this is pretty revolutionary with his time. It was. Details of his new pharmacy blueprints gave Holmes the most pleasure. Drawings included a wooden chute that went from a secret location on the second floor all the way to the basement. In the next room, Holmes also designed a large walk-in vault with airtight seams and asbestos-coated iron walls. Inside a closet, he would be able to control a gas jet into this vault and throughout the entire building. The large basement had hidden chambers and the sub-basement would be stored for his precious goods. What kind of precious goods? We'll see. Okay. In 1889, Holmes finally had his hotel designed the way he wanted it, and it was time to break ground to begin construction. Although he had plenty of money, he paid his workers so poorly that construction workers on the castle project would either quit or be fired. This suited Holmes, which could have been his intention in the first place so that no one would know his full intent of the architectural design of what would later be referred to as his murder castle. He deliberately had different tradesmen build separate parts of his hotel so no one knew he was building a murder hotel. The hotel layout was designed to secret passages so that when Holmes brought people into his office, he could take them undetected to the chute located in a private bedroom. He would place the bodies through a trap door which disposed of the body below. Then he dragged the body to the dissection lab. At the far end of the lab, he had another trap door to drop the body into. Holmes would then go back to his private bathroom and enter a secret stairway to where the body lay on a platform. I know they didn't. Did they have elevators back then? No. Okay. So he is well, going they, might, up, they must have because but, they have high rises.
0: Oh yeah. So it sounds to me like he's just going up and down and up and down and up and down. He's getting a great workout. Okay. And then I guess too, while you're, while you're talking about this, I'm curious to know where in the world is his mindset? Because he's talking, he, he built a hotel to be a, a murderous hotel.
1: Mm hmm.
0: And then he's he's designed it so that he could drag people
1: and drop them through all these trap doors. That was his intention. That's why he liked to have it right on that corner, right near where the fair was going to be. I thought
0: he was. In, OK, I'm sorry. I know he's a serial killer, But how in the world does he function? Because he has got the community so, what's the word I'm looking for? Wrapped
1: around their finger.
0: Yeah. And nobody's the wiser? That's crazy. Mm -hmm. It gets crazier. Okay.
1: Keep going. Where am I starting now? I don't know. This is intriguing. I Um, talked about drop the corpse into the basement. Okay. Some rooms were specifically designed to be killing rooms. Guests who stayed in the hotel said that its design was confusing and felt somewhat like a maze. Holmes eventually completed construction of his hotel in 1891 and began advertising in the local newspapers for women to come to work for him. However, one of the conditions that home made upon employment was that anyone who worked for him was required to carry a life insurance policy. What do you think about that? Okay, that's fishy. I mean, I
0: get it. I have life insurance through my work, but it's, you know, I know sign of the times and how things change over the decades and centuries, but a requirement upon working with somebody is to get a life insurance policy.
1: Yeah, that's that's wrong on all fronts. It's a big red flag to me. Mm -hmm. He agreed to pay the premiums as long as his employees listed him as the beneficiary. These conditions also applied to any guests that stayed at his hotel. Eventually, if you haven't guessed yet, many of have, have his guests and Holmes acquaintances would vanish.
0: I'm sorry. I'm, I'm perplexed. Anybody that came to work for him had to have a life insurance policy right. and he was supposed to be listed as the beneficiary. Exactly. I know when I get on an airplane, you have an option to get travel insurance with beneficiaries that, you know, in case I'm up in the plane and it comes down while I'm flying, mm-hmm. right? But to go stay in a hotel and get life insurance? It's
1: kind of funny in a way, but it's not.
0: I'm just like, if I were a guest, I would be questioning that. Why are you forcing me to get life insurance? Is there
1: something I need to know? Mm -hmm, Exactly. Holmes was very crafty and he had a knack for whining and dining. Not only the woman around town, but also any gentleman that he owed money to. Remember, Holmes was a con artist before he ended up in Inglewood. He was always charming and never lost his temper. Despite that fact, he was known to be a violent man with his first wife, Clara. Most of his major purchases were made on credit, but he had no intention of ever paying what he owed. In fact, Holmes was so arrogant that he didn't think he would ever be prosecuted. Whenever a creditor came to collect money for his debts, Holmes directed them to H.S. Campbell, a fictitious name that Holmes created for himself. He would wine and dine the debt collectors so that after parting ways, the amount he owed. would never actually be collected. It was estimated that Holmes owed $200,000 on his credit lines, but he was crafty and always had many more money schemes in the works that he would constantly try to collect money on. He's always scheming, for sure. Mm -hmm. Too many schemes for one man.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. In November 1890, officials decided that the next World's Columbian Exposition, or World's Fair, would be built in Jackson Park in Chicago, which caught attention. It was at this time that he decided to turn his building into a hotel because he knew he would have a lot of people coming and going because of this fair when it came to town in 1893. So the park is where they, they were building
0: the World's Fair? or Correct. Do you know Central Park in New York City? Mm-hmm. Did you know that the architect for Central Park in New York was the one that also designed this Jackson Park? No. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been to Central Park I had no idea it was as big as it is. You see it on TV, but you don't think it's that big. You actually could take a horse and carriage ride around the whole park and it'd take you a while. I've never seen Jackson Park, so I'd be interested to see that one.
1: Yeah, Jackson Park, I was just thinking a small park, but now that you mention it, it would have to be large to hold a fair. And uh, if he designed the Central Park, then um, he would want to design another park in that area of the state's to accommodate lots of people and greenery. Oh, yeah. First, Holmes relied on the fact that people would come to Chicago from all over the world. Second, he considered this was a prime opportunity to offer lodging near the fair, most especially to women, and that he could easily seduce. While he was creating this plan, Holmes bought a fire insurance policy on his hotel because he fully intended to burn that hotel once the fair closed so that he could collect the insurance money. It would also cover up any evidence that might have been left behind. After all, Holmes was a scam artist, but was in fact planning for something much more ominous. Early in 1891, Holmes started redesigning his hotel and again hiring and firing workers that were none the wiser. Holmes did not worry that the police station was situated in the Wentworth district, which was just outside of Chicago. He was on a friendly terms with a local policeman and knew each one of them by name. Occasionally, Holmes would even treat them to a free dinner or coffee from his restaurant, which kept the police friendly with Holmes and even protective of him. That same year, a drifter by the name of Ned Connor landed in Chicago with his wife, and eight-year-old child, in the hopes to find work as a jeweler. Ned eventually occupied a jewelry counter on one wall of Holmes's pharmacy, adding to its profitability. Ned's wife, Julia, was hired by Holmes to keep the books for his pharmacy, while Ned's 18-year-old sister, Gertrude, eventually followed her brother to town, and Holmes hired her to manage his mail-order medicine business. Holmes' intent to accommodate Ned with his family was to eventually kill the entire family. So there you go. There is a family that would be suitable for his purposes. Yeah, he likes to go for the whole family, doesn't he? Yes. You were talking about
0: the family of three at the, at, I guess, the start of this... Where he he chickened he chickened out because he was afraid he was going to get caught. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And
1: true to his nature, Holmes was extremely attentive to both Julia and Gertrude, which for obvious reasons made Ned uncomfortable. Julia and Gertrude, however, were quite smitten with Holmes, and Ned was becoming increasingly jealous. For good reason, though, because in 1891, Julia left Ned to be with Holmes. Holy cow, what? Yeah, and get this, she even became pregnant and demanded that Holmes marry her. Now, remember, Holmes was already married to not one, but two women. Only Julia was not aware of any of this when she demanded to get married. However, Holmes was very sympathetic toward her and agreed to get married if she let him perform an abortion
0: why i'm confused so he's okay is he is he trying to smooth talk her and say sure we'll get married why would he i don't know how to respond to this beth this is his mindset is just so oh he's calculating
1: Mm -hmm. because
0: i don't understand why he would tell her he wants her to get an abortion If he agrees to marry her, but it sounds to me too that she's a little
1: demanding. Yeah. And he obviously doesn't want children. He doesn't want to be tied down. That's that's the thing there. I'm glad you brought that up because earlier
0: you talked about him, I guess it was it Murda that he was married to? And they had a little baby named Lucy. At some point, did you in your readings find anything about how good of a father he was? No,
1: they never talked about him as being a father at all. Interesting. Yeah, they just skimmed on that. Hmm. Okay, keep going. This is good. Yeah, this procedure was to take place on Christmas Eve and on that night Julia tucked her daughter Pearl into bed. Come Christmas Eve, Holmes was very happy and wished Julia a Merry Christmas before leading her to the second floor of the hotel and into a room specifically prepared for the abortion. Holmes made Julia as comfortable as possible, and when she was settled and relaxed, it is said that he covered her face with a rag soaked in chloroform, and Julia closed her eyes for the very last time on Christmas Day. Other stories say that this was a case of a botched abortion. But regardless, Holmes later confessed that Julia's death was intentional. On Christmas morning, Julia's friends, the Crows, were waiting eagerly for the arrival of Julia and Pearl. They waited as long as they could, but by 10.30 they left for the day and arrived back very late into the evening. What happened to Pearl? I don't think anybody ever knows. Okay. However, there was no sign of Julia and Pearl. Presents were not touched, and when asked where they were, Holmes replied that they left for their trip to Davenport earlier than expected. She and Pearl were never seen again. It was later revealed that Pearl was poisoned because she was old enough to witness her mother going missing, and Holmes needed her to be quiet. Now, that's quite sad, isn't it? Yeah. However, there was no sign of Julia and Pearl. Presents were not touched, And when asked where they were, Holmes replied that they left for their trip to Davenport earlier than expected. Some reports also state that Holmes may have had an accomplice in this case, but nothing is confirmed. Holmes allegedly planned to adopt Pearl out to another couple, but Pearl would have easily said something away. So Holmes took care of her
0: himself. Now, while you were talking, I'm intrigued because it seems like he tells a lot of people that anybody he's associated with is out of town. So, I mean, magically people just leave to go out of town. The, the pharmacist who left town because her husband died.
1: Mm-hmm. And now Pearl and,
0: and her mother left town. Were they going out of town for a visit?
1: He never mentions he just likes to use that out of town okay
0: because too clara and Murda left town too did he do something to them that i'm gonna find out in just a little bit we'll see <laughs> okay that because he keeps okay i'm um, keep going beth this is great i'm i'm just like my mind is going in so many different directions with this story
1: I'm sure you have a lot of questions and hopefully I can answer them. (laughs) (laughs) Just after Christmas, Holmes invited one of his associates, Charles Chappell, to come to work for him because Chappell was a master at stripping down human flesh and reassembling it so the skeleton bones could be displayed in doctor's offices. Chappell learned this skill while working at Cook County Hospital for the needs of the medical students. As I mentioned earlier... Bodies were highly sought after at this time because at the height of their popularity, grave robbing was very popular and became a high profitable industry.
0: Now, are you talking about how he's assembling like the skeleton like I was telling you when when Kathy took me into the into the I'm going to call it a morgue? Um, yes,
1: exactly and and they hang in doctors' offices. yeah, well, back then they were real humans skeletons.
0: Wow. Yeah. okay, and this guy did this for a living.
1: Yes. Wow. When Chapel arrived, Holmes showed Charles Chapel his second floor room containing a table, instruments, and solvents. Chapel didn't bat an eye because obviously he had a medical background and so did Holmes. When Chapel saw a woman on the table looking like a skinned rabbit, he didn't think twice because he knew Holmes was a doctor. Holmes told Chapel that he was keeping up with his medical practice and was performing some dissection, but now he was finished. He then offered Chapel $26 to fully clean off the body and just leave the skeleton for Holmes. Soon after, Holmes ended up selling the skeleton for $26 he invested into Chapel's services. Now, I have a story about, I mentioned about the skinned rabbit. Did you know that dad did a lot of picking up and shooting of rabbits for food? You he know, are saying when he was growing up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I do remember hearing stories that he, he used to have to go rabbit hunting.
1: Yeah. And I just love, this is so inventive. He, he's a comic when you listen to his stories. What he did was he would hang up his rabbits to dry. I don't know the process. I guess they have to dry so many hours and they kept disappearing on him. So then he once hung up a rabbit and he made sure that he told people that he had a cat was missing from the clothesline. Wait,
0: what, was somebody in the neighborhood taking his rabbits to eat? Yeah. Yeah. I bet so, that stopped, didn't it? It did. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I loved hearing his stories. Oh, man. No, I I do know he liked
1: to hunt turtles. Yes, I remember going um, snapping turtle catching with them.
0: I never got to eat the soup. It was good. I'll never know. But I do remember, did he have you? Okay, you all, I don't know if you know how big these snapping turtles are, but when you're little, they're humongous. Yes, Yes. I I remember it to be giganticus, like...
1: Four feet wide. But we were tiny back then.
0: <laughs> yeah, the smaller you are, the bigger things look, right? Did you have to hold the shoe or was that just Kathy? I think we both did. I know he actually protected me from that. I never, you all, I'm so glad I never had to do this, but I do know the stories because, and I was never allowed near this situation. Our dad used to go uh, snapping turtle hunting and he would bring those, the turtles home and make soup out of it. Well, what do you have to do to prepare a snapping turtle? You had to, well, my sisters, Beth and Kathy, used to have to get a little white tennis shoe and just stick their hands out so that the snapping turtle would reach out and snap the shoe. Did it ever snap out of your hands, Beth? No, but I
1: remember dad says, buck up. He said, buck up to you? Yep. As he is Take a d- again. He He <laughs> Because we were being squirmish and...
0: He didn't like that because you were witnessing the, what happened when the, when the turtle reached out its neck Mm -hmm. to grab the the shoe, which would be when the ax came down. Yes. And dad was a pretty good shot there. Yes.
1: (laughs) I still have 10 fingers.
0: <laughs> 10 fingers and 10 toes, that's good. Yep. I'm glad I was sheltered from that, man. Man,
1: you were pretty young back then. So, <laughs> oh wow. In, in mid-January 1892, a new family by the name of Doyle moved into Julia's apartment in Holmes's building. As the family began settling into the apartment, they noticed dishes on the table and Pearl's sweater draped over a chair. Of course, the Doyles were none the wiser but it did appear that the apartment was not yet vacant. Holmes quickly apologized for the mess and stated that Julia's sister got sick, so she and her daughter Pearl left for a train station rather quickly. Then he soon found out that they would not be returning to the hotel for their belongings because they were well taken care of at their destination. Later, Holmes had another story about disappearance of Julia and Pearl, where he stated that he saw Julia around January 1st when he collected her rent and that Julia told him as well as others that she and Pearl were leaving to avoid her husband, Ned. Um, He was
0: collecting rent from her, but they were supposed to be getting married, right? Yes. So they were not living together just yet? It must
1: not have been. Probably not. Not yet. No. I find there's the book is so detailed that It just touches on subjects here and there, and it doesn't give you a lot of information.
0: And we have a 30-minute podcast, so that's all we can fit into, right? Keep going. Okay. (laughs) Where do I start?
1: Hmm. Holmes also denied that any affair took place between himself and Julia, and also noted that Julia had a hot temper. Other people who knew her would say differently. Keep in mind that we are building some of this storyline to later events, so some of the names that we are bringing up will play out later in Part 2. In the spring of 1892, Holmes' assistant, Benjamin Thitzel, was in the city of Dwight, Illinois, about 75 miles or 120 kilometers southwest of Chicago. Pitazole was closely associated with Holmes through many of the scams that took place before Holmes moved to Chicago. At this time, he was taking the cure for alcoholism at the Keeley Institute. This cure solution was a secret, but chemists were able to figure out that the solution created a state of euphoria, sedation, and amnesia. Eventually, Holmes recreated his own cure and opened the Silver Ash Institute, which he established inside the castle he built. This institute was also later used to continue on with Holmes's mail-order pharmaceuticals business. So, Bittesville returned to Inglewood and told Holmes that he met a beautiful woman named Emmeline Seagrand. Emmeline was 24 years old, a blonde, and since 1891 worked in the office of Dr. Keeley. Holmes immediately became intrigued with a hold of Emmeline, offering her double what she was making in wages to work for him. Emmeline quickly accepted the offer. And moved to Chicago with eight hundred dollars in savings. Once she arrived, Emmeline moved into an apartment near Holmes's building. Of course, Holmes put on his charm and bought her a bicycle to draw her in. They often took bicycle rides together and rode to the construction site where Holmes's building was being constructed. This building what? is going on and on, isn't it? Oh, it took forever. One day, Ned Connor went to Holmes's office where he met Emmeline. He was angry and wanted to talk to Holmes about a problem. With The mortgage. Emmeline was the one to greet him and he couldn't help but notice the way Emmeline talked to Ned about Holmes. Ned later said he could tell Emmeline was extremely fond of Holmes just by the look in her eyes when his name was brought up. Ned recalled telling Emmeline that Holmes was bad for her and that she should get away as soon as possible. But of course, Emmeline ignored his advice.
0: Was Ned the one that was married to Julia? You know what?
1: He's got so many women. I'm confused.
0: Okay. I'm just coming in to talk about the mortgage. While you were talking, I was thinking he was probably the one that Julia left him to go be with Holmes.
1: Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of women. Lots of them. (laughs) On May 1st, 1892, a doctor named M. B. Lawrence and his wife moved into a five-room apartment in Holmes's building. The Lawrences often saw Emmeline and Holmes together, and soon Lawrence could also tell this was not just a working relationship. As it turned out, Emmeline was deeply in love with Holmes because she considered him to have so many good qualities. According to Emmeline, Holmes was even the son of an English lord for whom Holmes swore to her secrecy when he disclosed this to her. Emmeline could not help herself and eventually told her friends about Holmes's family line and in turn swore them to secrecy just like she was.
0: You know, this is like a Harlequin romance, isn't it? It is. There's a lot
1: going on here. Yes, and it was very confusing trying to put everything together for this podcast.
0: You're doing a great job. It's just so intriguing with the storyline here. Yes,
1: it really is an intriguing story. Emmeline was a kind and outgoing woman. She made many friends and kept in touch with her family and friends in Indiana. In October two second Cousins, Dr. and Mrs. BJ Seagrand visited Emmeline when he was researching some family history on the Seagrands. They did not meet Emmeline before this time, but when they did meet, Dr. Seagrand was charmed by her pleasing manners. He later said she was a wonderful woman physically, being tall and a lot of blonde hair. What is it with men and blonde hair? Blondes have more fun. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. When Emmeline took the Seagrands on a tour of Holmes' building, she told them there was an effort to transform the building into a hotel for the World's Fair exhibition guests. Dr. Seagrand never met Holmes on this visit, but they heard a lot of grand stories of Holmes from Emmeline. She told of Holmes' charm, generosity, and how business savvy he was. Soon after Seagrand's visit, Holmes asked Emmeline to marry him, and she accepted. He promised her a honeymoon in Europe, and a visit to his father, the Lord. Emmeline left for Holmes' building in Inglewood in the first day of December, 1892. She stopped in at the Lawrences to give them an early Christmas present because she was going to Indiana to spend Christmas with her family. For some reason, Mrs. Lawrence had the feeling that this would be the last time she would see Emmeline, and asked if she was planning to go away for good, and Emmeline answered, maybe. The question was, did she finally learn things about Holmes, such as putting things on credit with no intentions of paying debt. Now, was Mrs. Lawrence the
0: wife of the doctor that came to town living in that five-bedroom or that five-room rental in the building? So they were just acquaintances, right? Just acquaintances. Okay. I was trying to connect the relationship here.
1: There was a question as to whether or not Holmes spent Emmeline's $800 savings. Emmeline never said goodbye to the Lawrences. Her visits simply stopped. Mrs. Lawrence asked Holmes about Emmeline's whereabouts three times, where he provided a different version of events every time. The last excuse was that Holmes was sworn to secrecy and wasn't to tell anyone he and she were getting married or moving to Europe. Were they going
0: to get married and go to Europe together? or? No, he She's Getting married to another man.
1: Yes, she was going to get married to another man. Okay,
0: there, I got you. Holmes is telling the Lawrences that she was getting married to another man in Europe. So he's yes. sending another woman away.
1: Exactly. Huh. Holmes even presented what appeared to be a wedding invitation. Mrs. Lawrence questioned whether the invitation was even valid because it was not professionally printed like everyone seemed to be doing at this point in time. So it was like
0: he received a wedding invitation to Emma line's wedding to another man
1: yes Uh, more than likely he's the one that drew it up because it did look so fake. And he was running out of excuses. Basically, he told her that when she went to Europe, nobody ever heard from her again. It was easy to say back in the 1800s.
0: Yeah, I guess it was. I mean, I'm yeah. really curious about his first two wives. I might be doing a little bit of research before part two.
1: Oh, that'd be <laughs> interesting. Yes, I'd like to hear that. Mrs. Lawrence wouldn't let things go regarding Emmeline's disappearance. She said that the day after the disappearance... Holmes' office door was kept locked and no one entered except Holmes himself. Mrs. Lawrence would later say that about at 7 p.m., two gentlemen were asked to take a trunk out of Holmes' office and carry it outside where an express wagon took the trunk away. She was a nosy neighbor. She was, but in this case, it's good to be nosy. Yeah, you,
0: everybody needs a nosy, one nosy neighbor. Not a bunch, but just at least one.
1: Yeah, then they know your comings and goings for your wealth. Fair. Hmm. Three years later, something was discovered by police, which was described as a phenomenon. How do you pronounce that? Phenomenon. <laughs> Here she
0: phenomenon. is. Her <laughs> 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 All right. I'll help you with that one. You've helped me in the past. It's phenomenon. So okay.
1: sorry.
0: I, <laughs> I tried so hard.
1: Oh, you did good. All right. Something was described as a phenomenon. Yep. And it would defy scientific explanation. Somehow a small footprint, thought to be that of a woman's foot, was deeply etched into the door of the room with the vault in the murder castle. There were details of the footprints trying to be rubbed off by hand, then with soap and water, but still the footprint remained clear as ever. No one could explain this mystery. The only theory that the police could come up with was that Holmes was known to have an avid interest in chemistry. Their theory was that Emmeline had stepped in acid, placed her feet against the door, and etched her footprint into the vault's door about two feet from the floor. Something peculiar occurred in this room-sized vault, but Holmes never confessed to anything. Emmeline's parents did not receive any more mail from her, even though it was common for her to write to them two or three times a week. Emmeline's parents never imagined that she could have been harmed, but rather that she died in Europe where Holmes said she moved to. On March 16, 1893, Peter Seagrand, Emmeline's father, wrote to Holmes asking Holmes about the whereabouts of his daughter, but never got a reply back. On the other hand, Holmes was confident that everything was kosher. Emmeline was carefully disposed of, and now he could focus of his enterprises. At this point, Holmes owned part of a legitimate company that produced a machine for duplicating documents Is that like a xerox machine yeah hmm. it also that was that old i know this story comes out with so many small tidbits it blows the mind mm-hmm. you're going to find out a lot in part two about these uh, funny tidbits So Holmes also owned a lucrative business that sold mail-order pharmaceuticals. Kind of like Amazon today. He was quite resourceful. Yes, he was. And he also started an alcohol treatment center called the Silver Ash Institute. And he collected rent from his tenants.
0: Definitely business savvy for sure. I mean, a really good entrepreneurial mind if he just left it at that, you know?
1: Yep. Although Holmes continued to spend a lot of time preparing his hotel for the World Fair guests, he began to think that his time in Chicago would soon be over because Mrs. Lawrence kept questioning Holmes about the whereabouts of Emmeline. Holmes would give different accounts each time she asked, yet Mrs. Lawrence was still not convinced that Emmeline was not in danger. After all, she had that feeling we mentioned earlier that she would never see Emmeline again. Around the same time, Holmes needed a new stenographer and typist and hired a woman by the name of Minnie Williams. Holmes met her on a trip to Boston. Minnie was perfect for Holmes. She was plain, short, and on the heavy side. She was described as having a masculine nose, thick, dark eyebrows, and almost no neck at all. Who does that sound like? Well, you have a neck. <laughs> <laughs> But you have bushy eyebrows. I do.
0: Well, not anymore. I have since known to go and get those waxed. (laughs) (laughs) But I do have the family curse of dark, thick eyebrows for sure.
1: Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I'm almost out of eyebrows. They're almost off. You know what's bad? I'm starting to see gray in
0: my eyebrows. Not me. I don't have gray hair. I just have gray in my dark eyebrows.
1: Baby sister. (laughs) Minnie was far unlike the women that Holmes had previously hired. She had an estate valued at $50,000, which is about $1.5 today. Eventually, Holmes won Minnie over, as he was known to do with many other women, and she fell madly in love with him. When he asked to marry him, she didn't hesitate to say yes. Holmes promised a lavish life and children with Minnie, but first he convinced her to transfer the deed of her Fort Worth land to a man named Alexander Bond. Bond, in turn, signed the deed over to Benton T. Lyman. Minnie did not know that Bond was just another alias for Holmes or that Lyman was an assistant of Holmes. Nor did she know that he was still married to other women. In the meantime, Holmes and Minnie married at a private ceremony where only she, Holmes, and the preacher were present. Holmes arranged everything, but there was no record of their marriage entered into the marriage registry of Cook County, Illinois. It was a fake wedding?
0: I would guess so. Would it have been even a real preacher? Maybe one of his friends?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right on that. I'm also
0: wondering, what's the timeline on all these courtships that he's got going on?
1: My gosh, it seems like as soon as he meets a woman, he's in he falls instantaneously in love.
0: Yeah, or they do anyway.
1: Yeah, he's a, he's a charmer. For sure. Okay, so from
0: 1889 to 1891 is when he's constructing his hotel. So it seems, okay, so the fair's not even
1: here yet. No.
0: And that's only two years time. So he's got these women who are smitten with him. Mm-hmm. He's and he's just a smooth talker in that short period of time. So I mean, I don't know why people in the community would not be a little bit more vocal about how many relationships this guy's in. Yeah, he's a good businessman and he's a charming man around town, but I don't know. I'm sure they
1: had their suspicions, but they had lives too. You know what I mean? Exactly. Hmm. So I think now is a good time to stop part one. I really wanted to go through the names and relationships that Holmes was involved in because we will dig deeper into these people in part two. But here is what we know so far. One, Holmes was a known con man who moved to Chicago to escape this reputation, but continued to use women and plot more sinister things when the World's Fair came to town. Two, Holmes went under several aliases to swindle men and women out of money, which left it almost impossible to collect his debt or connect him with fraud. Three, Holmes was married to multiple women who either left him or disappeared, leaving people suspicious of his accounts of his whereabouts. Four, Holmes could have easily continued running his lucrative business ventures and collecting rent on both his rental, retail, and residential space in the capital but then again he had the mind of a killer and lastly Holmes went on to use the World's Fair as a backdrop to his murderous schemes which we will talk about in part two How did you get through this book
0: Beth that is a lot of information it is I'm I can't wait for
1: part two when I finished the book I had 18 type pages oh wow. So all had to be condensed from there. Well,
0: now I know that we
1: have a part two that uh,
0: completely makes sense. I mean, that was, I guess, a really good synopsis on his personality. And mm-hmm. I mean, he's just fitting right in to society, or at least we think he is. Um, well, if you
1: walk away with all that knowledge, then you'll then you'll understand why people are so in tune with his mannerisms, his gentlemanness, of winning, winning over women and just what a kind fellow he was, because that's what he wanted to show. Now you said
0: earlier too, when he was married to Murda that he loved animals Mm -hmm. and he always had to have a pet. Where did he turn? That's my big question. If he was doing so well and he was a successful entrepreneur in the community, what in the world set him off to be the person that he turned out to be? I, I can't that's wait. a question
1: that we can never get from any of these people who are murderers and thieves and robbers. And they just maybe don't have a conscience. Yeah, I guess that would probably be it. And that's what it
0: boils down to. Well, I can't wait for part two. Yeah, before we go, do you have a teachable moment for us? A teachable moment? Um, <laughs> no, I don't have a teachable moment right now. I'm not prepared for that. I meant to look one up, but... Um, I really got to get these teachable moments down, don't I? I said I was going to have them and I'm mm-hmm. not you consistent. Did. So I will do my best for next time. No, no teachable moment. Okay. How about you? Do you have one? No. No. <laughs>
1: I just finished talking.
0: (laughs) You're a good storyteller. Wow. I just, wow. That's, yeah, I'm I'm intrigued. I don't have anything else. If you don't have anything else, I guess we're done with part one. That is a wrap. But before we wrap, let's give them our social media sites. I like to send everybody to dyingtobefound.com, which is spelled just like you see on our logo, because that's where you can click onto all of our links for social Social media, and we are out there on pretty much all of the podcasts at this point. So wherever you are, then you can find us on the podcast screen under True Crime. But I appreciate you guys hanging with us on this episode. It was Beth; you did a great job, and again, you're a great storyteller. And I really can't wait till next week when Thank you. when I hear part two. Yeah, that is a wrap. <music>